Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hey everyone, great to be back with you all. I'm Dr. Mike Weikamp, a surgery resident at the University of Washington, and I'm here with Drs. Andrew Wright and Nick Citruo, who we will recognize from our previous podcast on robotic surgery and the management of post, uh, uh, post-inguinal hernia repair groin pain. I'm also incredibly excited to introduce Dr. Nicole White, who is our section head of general surgery at the University of Washington's Northwest Campus. Dr. White is a fellowship-trained minimally invasive surgeon, has performed more than 1,400 robotic operations, and like our other two co-hosts, is a longtime favorite amongst us residents and medical students at the University of Washington. Dr. White, it's great to have you here with us. Thank you, Dr. Wycamp. I want to say you're one of our favorites, too. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, We have a great show lined up for you all today uh, in which we're going to discuss the surgical management of gastroesophageal reflux disease and two of the approaches available to address this pathology in the operating room namely uh, fundoplication and magnetic sphincter augmentation, better known as the LINX procedure. Since this is a journal review episode, we'll be using two recent articles from Surgical Endoscopy to guide our discussion. The articles are LINX, Magnetic Esophageal Sphincter Augmentation versus Nissen Fundoplication for Gastroesophageal Reflux Disease, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Dr. Daniel Skublenny and colleagues from 2017. And our other paper is entitled Three-Year Clinical Experience with Magnetic Sphincter Augmentation and Laparoscopic Fundoplication by Dr. Luigi Bonavina uh, and his colleagues published in 2020. Uh, Before we dive into our papers, though, Dr. White, would you mind giving a quick overview of exactly what LINX is for our listeners who might not be familiar? Of course. First, I want to give a quick review of the pathophysiology of reflux. There are three main components, the phrenoesophageal ligament, which keeps the gastroesophageal junction intra-abdominally, the lower esophageal sphincter, which is a area of high pressure zone, which keeps the pressure but is not truly an anatomic landmark, and the gastroesophageal valve, which is where the muscles converge of the oblique longitudinal and circular musculature and form a valve, which is a one-way flat valve. It's important to remember this anatomy when you're talking about the different types of reflux issues. So the LINX device is an implantable anti-gastroesophageal reflux system. It's comprised of a circular magnetic band with a variable number of titanium beads. It's somewhat like a Roman arch, so that when the bolus goes through it, it expands uniformly and then closes uniformly. This is placed laparoscopically around the GE junction in order to recreate the physiologic valve in reflux patients and thereby reduce or eliminate their symptoms. Lynx was marketed as an alternative to fundoplication. While we're going to discuss the role of industry involvement in research and surgery in a bit, it's important for us to note that while none of us have any financial conflicts of interest relevant to the device, the University of Washington was involved in the original Lynx trial that helped lead to FDA approval, and Dr. Wright was involved in the SAGE's technology review of magnetic sphincter augmentation. It's also important to note that some of the authors in the second of our two articles disclosed receiving financial compensation from the device manufacturer. It used to be called Torex, but it's now owned by Johnson & Johnson. 
I'd also like to point out that there have been some evolutions in magnetic sphincter augmentation over the years. Uh, when it was first released, it was recommended only for small type 1 hiatal hernias, and typically surgeons placed it without it doing a full mediastinal dissection and without doing a cruroplasty or, or closing the esophageal crura or the, the hiatal crura. Uh, surgeons have pushed the envelope with regards to hernia size, and they're now using it off-label in larger type 1 hiatal hernias as well as in type 3 paraesophageal hernias. And with this, most surgeons have now moved to doing a full mediastinal dissection and a crural closure. Another big change, the original uh, Lynx device could, stop, could become demagnetized in an MRI and stop functioning properly. So the device itself has been modified over the years. Uh, it's now currently available uh, uh, in a system that's compatible up to 1.5 Tesla scan. And they also changed some design features like the buckle of the device. Uh, with some of the early studies showing erosion of the device and dysphagia, especially in bands that were smaller with fewer number of beads, most surgeons have moved to a slightly larger and looser band. Um, all of those changes really color the analysis of these papers we'll be discussing today because they include data spanning the evolution of the device and the technique. And sometimes the papers don't really uh, get into details about, for example, the number of beads placed or the, the band size that was used. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Wright. And for those who are interested in familiarizing themselves with the procedure who may not have seen it themselves in person, we'll also have some links to Sage's videos in our show notes that you can take a look in your free time. Uh, let's get into some of the literature. Uh, like last time, we'll go over the important aspects of the methodology and results, but if you're interested in a deeper dive uh, than our time-limited podcast allows, the links to the articles will be uh, included in our show notes as well. The first paper uh, is the Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis uh, by Dr. Skublenny. Uh, Dr. Strula, you want to get us started and take us through exactly how they did their study and what they found? Sure. <clears throat> this review uh, looked for randomized control trials and non-randomized comparison studies, including case series comparing magnetic sphincter augmentation using links to fund application for the treatment of GERD with the following primary outcomes. GERD health-related quality of life score, which is a validated metric <clears throat> commonly used in re reflux research, Demeester score, operative time, ability to velch and vomit, discontinuation of PPI, need for endoscopic dilation, bloating, dysphagia, and procedural satisfaction. This included only studies that directly compared links to fundoplication, studying at least one of the outcomes of interest mentioned above, with a minimum of five patients enrolled. They excluded our articles that had crossover data from one treatment to the other, which yielded three studies representing 273 fundoplication patients and 415 uh, magnetic sphincter augmentation patients, respectively. They found a statistically significant advantage for magnetic sphincter augmentation with respect to preservation of belch with 95.2% versus only 65.9% in the two arms and the preservation of the ability to vomit, again, 93.5% in the magnetic sphincter augmentation arm versus 49.5% in the fundoplication arm. No statistically significant differences in GERD health-related quality of life scores, rate of PPI discontinuation, bloating, dysphagia, or procedural satisfaction were identified. For post-R bloating, it's worth pointing out that the Lynx group reported this issue at 26.7% compared to 53.4% in the fundoplication group with a p-value of 0.06%, so possibly a trend but not, not able to truly say it's statistically significant. 
It's also important to make sure we look at the baseline and demographic characteristics between the groups, specifically that the fund application patients in the included studies included more males than the MSA group, and more importantly, had larger hiatal hernias than the MSA group. Also, the average follow-up for the three included studies um, which were limited, uh, ranging from 7 to 16 months. Interesting. Uh, I see what you're saying, that it's important to consider that fund application patients probably have a more severe disease process than the uh, Lynx patients, but uh, at least clinically, I haven't seen many of our patients who get uh, fund applications get routinely followed out past a year. Do you mind unpacking why that's a limitation of this study, Dr. Ray? Well, fund applications have really been performed for decades since Nissen first described the operation uh, back in the 50s, and it's been mainstream surgical practice since the 70s. So we have a good understanding of the natural history and complications of patients who undergo a fund application. Uh, there are a lot of debates and randomized controls trials in the early days of laparoscopic fund application with surgery versus medical therapy, and there are also a lot of debates about technical aspects of the fund application itself. And through those RCTs that were done through the 90s, we really have standardized the operation and, and pretty well understand the long-term outcomes of Nissen fund application. Uh, so we know that fund applications have a good track record, but not perfect, and there are side effects of the Nissen, uh, such as bloating and dysphagia. Uh, so a lot of investigators and a lot of companies have been trying to come up with some uh, new techniques and new devices that can minimize those side effects. The other thing to consider is that a fund application is technically challenging and um, probably operator dependent. And so there's been some work trying to get a technique that's less operator dependent, perhaps easier to use. Um, and that's one of the benefits purported by Lynx advocates, that it's a, a, an easier operation for people to learn and do effectively. Uh, I also think it's important to know the context of the history of foregut surgery, um, which that we've had a long history of new great ideas that have been tried and, uh, and have failed. A lot of those have involved placing artificial sphincters around the lower esophageal sphincter. Uh, the angel tick reflux device, for example, was a non-adjustable uh, band that went around the lower esophageal sphincter and caused a lot of trouble and was essentially abandoned. Uh, the lap band for obesity similarly uh, causes a sort of a pseudoachalasia uh, effect in a lot of patients. And then things like the transoral incisionless fund application, again, ways coming up with something better than the fund application that got a lot of early excitement and then eventually with long-term studies showed that, uh, that they really weren't very effective and caused more, more trouble than they were worth. Uh, because of that, there's a lot more uh, scrutiny of new devices and new technology in this field, and so I think most surgeons really want to see proof of long-term safety and efficacy. I think that's such a great point. Every time a device has been tried to be placed in that part of the anatomy, it has failed to this point, so it'll be very interesting to see with long-term data. And that brings up some of the limitations in evaluating the effectiveness, safety, uh, and ability to use the Lynx device in more cases. While the gold standard for evaluating a novel therapy like the Lynx device would usually be a randomized controlled trial, proposals for this haven't been funded until recently and we've had to use mostly single arm studies with relatively short follow-up for Lynx. During these studies they're comparing patients to their preoperative baselines but no real comparison to current surgical standard of care such as a laparoscopic fund application beyond a year post-op. 
Now, I think at times, randomized controlled trials are overvalued in evaluating especially new devices because it can be often hard to initiate them and find patients to recruit. I think the Lynx device is developed enough of a safe track record at this point that more trials should be coming out to discuss that. I do want to add on that um, in that it's important as we've seen the evolution of multiple different devices and different techniques to uh, solve the issue of gastroesophageal reflux disease, we really need to evaluate our own results. Um, Dr. Wright and I have both experienced multiple different, uh, you know, novel devices during our sort of growing up. And they seem great initially, but we have to see the long-term data. Follow your own results and be critical. I think it'd be an interesting topic for a future uh, behind the knife episode to talk about uh, how devices get through the FDA process and get approved and marketed. Um, I think that's something I didn't understand as a resident. It turns out you don't actually have to show that a device is better than the gold standard to get on the market. You just have to show uh, uh, safety and efficacy data. Uh, so I, I think that we see a lot of devices get to the market and we assume that a device that's marketed must be better and that's not necessarily the case. Thanks, everybody. Great points. Uh, since we're talking about the importance of these long-term outcomes, uh, let's get into our next article, which was designed explicitly to try and give them to us. Uh, Dr. White, would you mind taking us through the paper by Dr. Bonavina? Definitely. This paper by Dr. Bonavina and colleagues attempted to address the limitations of many of the prior MSA articles. In this article, they looked at longer-term outcomes at three years. And it was a prospective uh, with fundoplication comparison. It was comparing the group of um, MSA to different types of fundoplications depending on the surgeon preference. And looking at outcomes um, to be able to compare prospectively instead of just a single arm study. So they performed this study using a registry of 465 MSA patients and 166 fundoplication patients that had previously been used for comparative outcome study in a one-year post-op study published previously in surgical endoscopy. They looked at baseline characteristics, reflux symptoms, PPI use, patient satisfaction, and complication rates. Despite the prospective multi-center design being a strength, it should be noted that this was an observational study and not ram randomized, and that there are baseline differences between the groups related to labeling restrictions for the Lynx device. The MSA group had significantly smaller hiatal hernias, less severe reflux, less severe esophagitis, and a lower proportion of patients with Barrett's esophagus. Additionally, the fundoplication patients were significantly older, 56 years versus 46 years, and had higher BMIs by about two. Moving to the primary outcomes with, the context, with this context in mind, the authors found that the patient satisfaction, prevalence of GERD interfering with sleep, ability to belch, persistent use of PPIs, and willingness to have surgery again to be comparable between patients who received fundoplication and those who underwent the magnetic sphincter augmentation. 
Similar to the prior study, they did note statistically significant defense in the ability to vomit favoring magnetic sphincter augmentation compared to fundoplication. So 91.2% were able to vomit in the MSA group versus 68%. Procedure-related complications were similar between the groups, 1.8% for fundoplication and 2 for the MSA. The authors also looked at operating time, which have favored the LINX procedure in terms of about an average of 43.2 minutes versus 79.7 minutes. But again, this may be looking at times where people were doing more minimal dissection versus the more thorough dissection that Dr. Wright described prior. So a re-follow-up or a re-examination of this data probably is in order given the dates when this study was performed. They looked at proportion of lengths of stay under 24 hours, finding that the lengths patients stayed uh, on average for shorter periods of 36.1% for 24 hours versus 11%. Reoperation rate for the fundoplication patients was 1.9%, all occurring within uh, one year of the index procedure. And the device removal rate for the sphincter augmentation was 2.4% over a full three-year uh, follow-up. Finally, they looked at healthcare resource utilization uh, which was similar between the groups and there was no statistical difference. They also compared their three-year outcomes with their previously published one-year outcomes from the same registry, finding that a statistically there was a statistically significant advantage for the MSA patients over the fundoplication patients with respect to the persistent PPI use reported of one year. They also noted an increase in the number of participants in the registry between the two studies comparing one-year responses for post-op PPI, showing no statistically significant difference in PPI use between the groups. There was similarly no difference in two and three years, suggesting that the previously published difference may be attributable to a type one error and not an actual statement of fact. Interesting. Uh, we'll get into the practical implications of these findings in a moment, but before we do, since some of the authors of this second article do have disclosed conflicts of interest, in that they received both direct financial contributions from the makers of Lynx and that the research itself was funded partially by the company. I wanted to talk a little bit about how to use this data thoughtfully and how our evaluation of the articles changes, especially in a field like minimally invasive surgery that's unavoidably intertwined with industry. Dr. Ray, you want to uh, bring us through how to think about conflict of industry, uh, conflict of interest when evaluating uh, the literature? I think it's important to realize that conflict of interest isn't necessarily bad and that in fact if we want to advance the science and future of surgery as a profession, we really need to work with industry. Uh, there's no progress without working with our industry partners. But that said, we have to be really careful when we look at research studies, uh, marketing, social media posts, everything with the lens through um, understanding how that conflict of interest might be affecting our results. Um, so the first is really is our cherry picking of data. So are we going to be more likely to see papers that are, are uh, in support of a new technology because the, uh, only the people that are actively involved and funded by the, re by the industry are presenting and, and posting the results? And there, I think a corollary to that is publication bias, um, that the, only the positive studies are going to get published. Whereas studies that really show no difference or, or a negative result of new technology tend to get buried. Um, so I think that uh, you really have to look at the studies, look at who's publishing them, and uh, take everything with a grain of salt. 
uh, it's really, it really shows the importance of disclosure, uh, because if we don't know about these conflicts of interest, we can't really think about them and, and weigh them when we're analyzing the results of a study. I do think it's important to, sh to say that this isn't just in anti-reflux. We see this in hernia mesh. We've seen this in robotic surgery. Basically, any uh, technology-related aspect of surgery, we see these issues of conflict of interest. And we see really systemic underreporting of conflicts of interest, uh, both in uh, research that's presented at national meetings and also in papers that are presented uh, and published. Uh, so, so I, again, conflict of interest isn't bad, but we have to be aware of it and how it might influence the data and uh, influence how we uh, interpret that data. Thanks, Dr. Wright. Uh, with that in mind, at the three-year time point, it seems uh, that there are comparable outcomes between the two treatment modalities, uh, albeit uh, two significantly different populations with the fundoplication patients representing uh, probably more severe pathology. Dr. White, can you help our listeners understand uh, how the epidemiology of some of these more severe GERD-related phenotypes affects eligibility for MSA? Absolutely. So first, I want to talk about and sort of remind you all that there is a package insert in every device that comes to us uh, from industry. And I wanna tell you about the on-label uh, package insert, which does affect a lot of these studies and how we use this Lynx device. However, as you heard earlier from Dr. Wright, it's being used in off-label conditions and that is our judgment as trained surgeons to do what's best for our patients. So the on-label uh, insert says you should not place the Lynx device if there is a hiatal hernia greater than three centimeters, if there is esophagitis, LA classification C or D, um, and A and B is okay, if there is major motility disorder, or the BMI is greater than 35. And the issue with this label is if you're gonna place it in patients who don't, who don't fit the criteria, insurance is going to look through that and likely not reimburse you for it. So looking, looking at what we do in our practice, well, what I want you to remember is initially these novel devices that are created as less invasive were marketed to the gap patients who have reflux disease that without any major anatomic change, okay? So non-erosive reflux disease, grade one or two hill valve without a parasophageal hernia. And it was marketed in that the more severe phenotypes had should undergo a fundoplication or a minimally invasive procedure. Now, you have to consider what's right for your patients. And I, surgeons have extrapolated that we need to repair the hiatal hernia and we need to build a gastroesophageal valve. We have this Lynx procedure and it seems like a pretty good um, procedure and they will try to use it as long as it's safe in their hands. Um, they're able to do so. So that's just a spectrum. We see all different type of reflux patients in our practices. We cater the reflux operation to what they need as a, and what their desired outcome is. And if I can add on, I think that the, um, 
uh, folks are using the links in bigger and bigger hernias, and I, I think that's probably acceptable, and there's some, some data that's starting to come out to support that. I do think the links is still contraindicated in patients with ineffective esophageal motility, and a, that's a large percentage of the patients, at least, that we see in our clinic. Um, so at least in our hands, that's really limited the number of patients where, uh, that, that might be eligible for a links. Um, I think the other thing, and Dr. White touched on this, is the insurance issue. Um, the insurance uh, is highly variable depending on what state you're in. And in our state, we actually have a lot more trouble. I have friends in other states that have much less trouble getting links approved. So it's just interesting how variable that can be depending on your location. So Dr. Wright, would you recommend that anybody approaching or thinking about using a links procedure should get a motility study as a part of the preoperative workup? Yeah, that's actually mandatory. There's some debate about do they need manometry or is a timed barium swallow uh, acceptable? In my, my opinion, I think they need a manometry. I think we need to treat all of our reflux patients the same way and do the same workup for each patient because you never know which one's going to turn out to be the procedure of choice. Great. So in that vein, Dr. White, uh, how would you counsel a patient with this data uh, who's considering a surgical anti-reflux procedure? Uh, let's say, for example, you have a patient who came to you for a second opinion after being offered magnetic sphincter augmentation by another surgeon. Assuming they had a complete endoscopic, radiographic, manometric, and pH workup, uh, which confirmed reflux uh, with a one-centimeter hiatal hernia, LA-class A esophagitis, and no Barrett's, and no obvious motility issues like Drs. Wright and Citrua were talking about. Um, if there are no obvious contraindications to either approach, uh, how would you go about helping a patient make their decision? Yeah, I think we need to counsel them based on outcomes, and I think long-term safety and efficacy is very important. There are, um, there's an additional study that, had, that came out in 2019 of 9,500 patients with, who received an MSA, and it just was to report the erosion rate, and that's all it did. So erosion rate was 0.3%, and reoperation rate was 3%. So it's relatively safe. The other thing you want to consider is reversibility. So fund applications are reversible. People can have operations. People, Nissens can be converted to pays, vice versa. A Lynx is also reversible. You can remove the uh, Lynx device. None of these operations are desirable to do, but they're reversible. Um, I'm happy to hear that the MRI compatibility is improved of the Lynx system, which was initially skepticism that I had when it first came out of uh, doing this procedure. However, there, it's a very special MRI device that you have to go into, so not all MRIs are compatible with this new uh, device, so that's important to take into consideration. The other thing is you just need to talk to your patient and ask them what their desired outcomes are, as I responded to before. Um, the desire is to have improved quality of life. If the desire is to improve their esophagitis, um, we have longer-term data on the laparoscopic fundoplication procedures and uh, help the patient make a decision that's right for them. I, I also want to talk about some of the other long-term uh, safety that was discussed in Dr. Bonavina's paper, which was 6 to 12 years. Um, and in their paper, uh, they, had they had six erosions, actually. Um, but it's all perspective here. 
Let's just switch quickly to talk about insurance. There is actually an insurance code for the magnetic sphincter augmentation. A lot of the other um, novel approaches to GERD have not been as successful at having insurance codes created. I will say there is a difference in work RVU, so difference in reimbursements for a laparoscopic fundoplication versus a magnetic sphincter augmentation. However, parasophageal hernia repair is probably added on to the MSA device, so maybe it becomes even. Got it. And sorry, Dr. White, just to clarify, Dr. Bonavina has written a couple of these papers. The one that you just mentioned is a different single-arm study uh, that follows the not 6 to 12 years. Uh, just for people following along, those will also be in our show notes. Um, so uh, the next question I was hoping to get into uh, was how people learn to do these operations. While my experience is limited to what I've seen in uh, residency, it seems that anti-reflux surgery is largely performed by people with MIS fellowship backgrounds. While obviously operating laparoscopically uh, in and around uh, the hiatus requires surgical training and experience, the LINX training process seems to be intimately tied to industry. Uh, is learning to do these outside of an MIS fellowship or a high-volume foregut practice safe and sustainable? Uh, maybe Dr. Wright uh, as a fellowship PD and Dr. Satrulo as someone who isn't too far off from your own MIS fellowship experience, you two could tackle this one. Yeah, I think it's interesting because um, the Lynx has in part been marketed as something that's a little bit easier to incorporate into a practice and uh, therefore perhaps a way for more patients to have access to anti-reflux surgery without necessarily going to a high volume esophageal center. I think that's a bit unfortunate because um, anti-reflux surgery isn't just the technical aspects of the operation. Anti-reflux surgery is really the full spectrum of evaluating a patient, uh, working them up, including things like understanding esophageal manometry and physiology. I think patient selection is really critical, and the number one predictor of, of dissatisfied patients is when you select the wrong patients in the first place. Uh, so I think that certainly you can do a Lynx or a Nissen without having done an MIS fellowship, but I think you would be remiss if you were to do these without really having a solid grounding in esophageal physiology and patient selection. And that requires a lot of volume and a lot of experience. Um, so if, if you're a, a general surgeon in practice who doesn't currently manage a lot of anti-reflux patients, I don't think it's a good idea just to say, I'm going to go to a weekend course and start putting in the Lynx device. Uh, I think if you are a general surgeon that already does anti-reflux surgery, and, and has a strong practice, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you could go take a course and learn how to do this. Uh, but I do think it is important. Industry's job is to sell product, and so they're gonna wanna make it seem as appealing and as easy as possible. Uh, so you always have to take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. I think it brings up a great point too. The pancreas gets a lot of respect as a very feared organ in the abdomen, but I personally think the esophagus is a very dangerous organ to operate on and around. Anti-reflux surgery has a high danger rate, I would call it, with a high index to injure surrounding structures and also very important structures. An understanding of the anatomy of the vagus nerve is not easy and should be a standard part of a good foregut surgeon's practice because injury to the vagus nerve will cause irreparable damage 
after for your patients. Also, if you're going to be doing the more modern technique of doing a true crural repair, suturing minimally invasively on the crura is not something that is easily learned uh, or easily mastered. It is something that takes skill, technique, experience, years of practice to really be a master at and to do well. I certainly know that when I was doing my MIS fellowship, some of my more stressful moments in the operating room were suturing with ski needles with Dr. Todd Hennerford trying to close the hiatus. Uh, it's a technique that taught me more than almost anything I've learned in my training because it's an area, if you can suture there laparoscopically, you can suture most places. So I think having an ability to handle needles safely, handle the tissue in that area, have a true deep understanding of the anatomy of the esophageal hiatus is really a crucial part of any good foregut surgeon's practice. I am not saying that you have to have done a fellowship to be a good foregut surgeon, but I feel like you should be a good foregut surgeon before you become a good lynx surgeon. This is a device that can, as Dr. Wright said, expand the potential group that can get anti-reflux procedures who wouldn't necessarily qualify or need a fundoplication. But much like the band was seen as almost the easy way out for bariatric and weight loss surgery, or metabolic surgery is a better way to say it, uh, this should not be seen as a way out for that. Regarding going to courses and trying to learn two new techniques, I'm uh, about three years into my practice and I'm still mastering my current techniques. So the thought of trying to build a new technique where I could master a weekend course seems rather far-fetched to me. So as I said before, if you consider yourself a good foregut surgeon, this can be, should be something you add to your armamentarium, but it shouldn't be the other way around. Yeah, I'll, I'll add that as someone who's a little bit more senior than Dr. Citrullo, about half the things that I do, I didn't learn in my residency. Not just in foregut, but in abdominal wall and robotics and, and so you have to always be learning as a surgeon. You can't think that you're gonna learn everything in your residency and then stop. Oftentimes that does require working with industry because a lot of these are new techniques and new devices. Uh, but you have to approach them in a very thoughtful way. And as, as Dr. White said earlier, you have to be really honest about your outcomes and to analyze and look at your outcomes. And that's the great thing about things like having a, a database where you follow your patients. So you can really track and and figure out if you're doing the right things and be willing to reassess if it turns out uh, that they don't work out. I mean, in my own career, I did lap bands for years and realized that my patients weren't doing as well and stopped doing them. So you, you have to always be willing to look at things with that critical eye. Uh, awesome, everybody. Uh, great discussion, as always, because we're creeping up on time. I'm going to do my best to boil down all this wisdom into some take-home points for our listeners. Uh, first, I'd say magnetic sphincter augmentation is a newer technology for the surgical treatment of GERD with good safety and uh, efficacy data compared to fundoplication uh, up to three years. Single arm data is available up to as far as 12 years. And while we can and should use all of this data uh, to counsel our patients, it needs to be interpreted in the context of the limited population that Lynx is intended for use in and a preponderance of industry-supported research in this area. Second, with the caveat that head-to-head -head studies with fundoplication are limited by being non-randomized and the fact that Lynx patients have less severe disease phenotypes, 
there's reasonable data supporting that compared to fundal duplication, Lynx offers superior preservation of belch and vomiting, faster operating times, although as we've mentioned, the technique has evolved over time, uh, slightly shorter length of stay, uh, and uh, the ability to be reversed without anatomic disruption, although uh, it should be noted that it does obviously still require surgical removal. Uh, third, uh, while we expect further studies uh, uh, are going to be performed with links, uh, will be applied to an increasingly broad population with more and more severe disease phenotypes, it's critical that we continue to scrutinize these results and counsel our patients using data that is representative of their disease severity and comorbid factors. Uh, in summary, links is a tool uh, in the surgeon's armamentarium to combat reflux and is a reasonable option for many patients and may help us expand access to anti-reflux surgery uh, to our patients. Well, that's a wrap. That's all we have for you this episode. No pun intended with that one. We really appreciate your tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Behind the Knife. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.